0: Heim and Minsky always say that if you cannot put your reasoning in a balance sheet, then there is something wrong with your reasoning. So balance sheets provide you a a rigid framework that if you can't put your reasoning in there, you're missing something. And so it's a good tool for analyzing any financial operations. The central bank makes sure that treasury auctions are successful either by directly buying or by financing the main buyers of treasury securities. I refer often to Martin Luther King in the context of the civil rights movement. He said, I have no time for the tranquilizing drug of gradualism and incrementalism.
1: See if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, this is Steve with Macro and Cheese. Today's guest is a returning guest, Eric Tim He's an associate professor of economics at Lewis and Clark College, Portland, Oregon, and a research associate at the Levy Economics Institute of Bard College. His areas of teaching and research include macroeconomics, money and banking, and monetary economics. My discussion with Eric today is as much for me as it is for you, because this is probably one of the most frustrating dialectical perspectives you will experience, and that is, how does a monetarily sovereign government spend? In particular, when we're talking about a government that creates its own currency, and we have two different angles, we're going to look at this through the Consolidated federal reserve treasury approach and then we're going to look at the collaborative cooperative version of the treasury and the federal reserve i know a lot of you out there have these questions and it's a fair question because they make this as murky as you can get and so in an absolute effort to try to explain simplify and give you guys tools to use in your evangelism in your activities in terms of explaining modern monetary theory to your friends and your political figures, et cetera. We're going to do more of this, by the way. We're going to try and have Eric back to help us with a visual representation of this. But for for today, we're going to go with the narrative version. So with that, Eric, thank you so much for joining me today, sir. Thank you for having me, Steve. Absolutely. I'm very happy to have you on because for as long as I've been trying to be an activist in this space, This subject is the one that trips more people up than almost anything short of inflation. And when I think about trying to explain to people, do federal taxes fund spending? And your answer is no. Stephanie Kelton's 1998 paper, can taxes and bonds finance government spending? And the answer came out to an unequivocal no. And that served as my viewpoint and how I frame this. And you have heard Warren Mosler explain it in his own unique way. You've heard Randy and you've heard all the other developers. And when you come to your banking primer, that was in new economic perspectives, it still leaves me scratching my head. So why don't you start off with explaining at least at a high level, the two different approaches, and then we can dive down into each one separately.
0: Okay. So I guess one of the main confusions in all these discussions is what do we mean by government? And a lot of people, when they think about government spending and taxes, they focus on government means the U.S. Treasury. MMT takes, and not only MMT, actually, if you look at academic work, it's quite a widespread technique. We don't mean U.S. Treasury when we look at government. We mean U.S. Treasury and the central bank together as a single entity. So with that, we look at the implications of the merging of these two entities into one in terms of public finance and in terms of its impact on the rest of the economy. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, that's not realistic. That's confusing. That's not how people think about it. And it leads to results that are counterintuitive. And so, again, it's not merely an MMT way of looking at things. And second of all, if you do not like the way of, of looking at government financial operations through this technique, It's possible to separate the two entities, the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve. But in that case, what you have to do is look at how they interact with each other, how they work together. Clearly, a lot of people think that the U.S. Treasury and the central bank are completely independent from each other, they don't talk to each other, and the central bank is supposed to be independent. The Treasury is not supposed to be able to create money and so it has to look for the money somewhere. And unfortunately, this is not a correct way of understanding how the Treasury and the central bank operate. Every day, every month, every week, every year, they are always heavily in relation with each other. To help fiscal policy, to help the treasury finance itself and also to help monetary policy, that is to help the central bank meet its policy objective in terms of interest rate target, for example. So when you move to a coordination of the two entities and an analysis of these two entities, what you find is that the results or the conclusions that you have In the consolidated case, come back. You'll find similar results, although you'll also find things that are different. And so what we can do is move to an analysis of each of them, if you want.
1: Let's start with the consolidated one, because that's the one that I'm most familiar with.
0: So to really do that properly, we would need to go to a drawing board and look at balance sheets. But first of all, I guess I would say that if you look at rhetorical arguments made by Alan Greenspan, Warren Buffett, even the Federal Reserve, we talk about the United States cannot run out of money. The federal government cannot run out of money. So... In all these discussions, clearly, they are merging together the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. So it's a common rhetorical tool used by a wide range of people. And again, as I said, the theoretical level, it's also a common way to analyze government financial operations, not only by MMT, of course, but also outside MMT, where MMT goes further is in understanding the impact of merging these two entities on the role of taxes and issuance of government securities. I think that's something others do not do. And others also tend to say that the US government can always print the money. It's always an option. When you actually look at the accounting and do the accounting, you'll see that issuing money to Spanish is the only option. There is no other option. And so I think the contribution of MMT at that level has been to really straighten up the accounting and the logic at play when you consolidate the governments and make sure that we understand well that There is only one way for the government to spend, which is by crediting accounts. And it's impossible for taxes and government securities to fund the government. And of course, the other conclusion is that you need to spend first, or if you don't spend, you need to provide credit first or make a gift through grants. Whatever it is, you have to inject the money first before taxes can be implemented and
1: before you can
0: issue government securities.
1: I say in shorthand, printing money is government spending. Government spending is new money creation. And taxation is money destruction. That's right. So printing of money is spending money then it's unprinting money on the back end. These are just shorthand, quick ways for regular people to capture these things.
0: That's correct. And that's the perspective of Stephanie Bell at the time, now Stephanie Kelton's paper. She looks at a consolidated government. And so she analyzes things that way. On its own term, it's perfectly fine. I think the main contribution of doing that is to, again, Clear the rhetorical argument and theoretical argument that is used quite widely to push the logical conclusion to its end by looking at the accounting and what does that mean practically to merge the two things together in terms of balance sheet operations and what does that mean when the government spends in terms of balance sheet operations, what does it mean when government taxes again in terms of balance sheet operations. So it's Hyman Minsky that always say that if you cannot put your reasoning in a balance sheet, then there is something wrong with your reasoning. So balance sheets provide you a a rigid framework that if you can't put your reasoning in there, you're missing something. And so it's a good tool for basically analyzing any financial operations.
1: So when you say balance sheets. I took Perry Merling's course on Coursera and it showed us the balance sheet back and forth. It also talked about crediting accounts with reserves inside the banking system. When the government spends, reserves are created. Help me understand where reserves come into this.
0: Yeah. So when you look at the consolidated government on the Liability side of the government balance sheet, you'll have the monetary base, part of which is composed of reserves. And reserves are accounts. Mostly today, at least, they're accounts of banks. In this case, it would be at the government. If you go more to the institutional details, it's accounts at the Federal Reserve. But if you move to a consolidated case, again, we're merging the Fed and the Treasury together, there's, there would be an account at uh, the government. Okay. And so when the government needs to spend, say it needs to spend $20 to buy pizzas, what can happen is, of course, the pizza shop doesn't have an account directly at the government on the balance sheet of the government the bank of the pizza shop that has an account there. So to pay the pizza shop, the government is going to pay the bank and the bank will pay the pizza shop. And so to pay the bank, the government credits the reserve account of the bank by $20. And in turn, the bank will credit the account of the pizza shop by $20. Pretty
1: simple sounding it doesn't sound terribly complex at all so far (laughs) so far help me understand then when we say and i don't want to jump around too much i want to let you go through this logically but from the shorthand that is frequently uttered by us activists when we say that taxes drain reserves Mm -hmm. most people only think of spending and taxing they don't think of all those micro-operations in between, what does it mean to drain a reserve? What is happening there? What is the point of a reserve? Is it just simply to facilitate transactions between banks?
0: So first of all, when we drain reserves, taxes, what they do is debit accounts. Again, think of when we pay our taxes, we have to write a check to the U.S. Treasury. Now, again, we're not looking at the US Treasury here, we're looking at the US government as a entity that is composed of the Fed and the Treasury. So there you would be writing a check to the US government, the United States. So when you write that check, say it's a $10 tax, well, you write a $10 check to the US government And what's going to happen is your account will be debited by $10. Now, again, you don't have a direct financial relation with the U.S. government. You work through the banking system. So the banking system will debit your account by $10. And in turn, will also, on the asset side of its balance sheet, the bank will debit $10 of reserves. And then the question is, where do these reserves go? Do they provide funds for the U.S. government? And the answer is no. The only thing on the balance sheet of the U.S. government reserves fall by 10. And here after that, you have several ways to go, but one is to have net worth going up by 10, could go that way, or another one would be the government Tax dues fall by 10 on the asset side. The idea being that, again, taxes debit accounts. They debit your accounts and they debit the account of the banks at the government. And that's it. The government is not going to gain any money. When you merge the Fed and the Treasury together, what you find is that the government has no money. That is, on the asset side of the U.S. government, there is no domestic monetary instrument. There is no U.S. dollars that it spends because the U.S. dollars, in this context, are the monetary base, which are the cash and the accounts of banks. And those are the liability of the U.S. government, not its asset. So when you tax, you reduce the amount of monetary base. And the government doesn't gain any asset.
1: Huh. Let's step back just for a second. We often hear people talking about how the U.S. isn't going to be able to spend all this money when these other countries drop the dollar. And I know we're not going to go into... But in particular, I wanted to understand when a country holds dollar denominated debt or its currency is pegged to the US dollar, mm-hmm. frequently they need to have dollar reserves. And speaking with another one of our MMT friends from Pakistan, Akhtaz Afsal, he said basically, you can run out of reserves. We don't have enough US reserves, we don't have enough to facilitate the transactions between our country and your country. Mm -hmm. What is the role of reserves on the international stage and why does that matter?
0: So it's not only banks that have accounts. So let's move away from the US government technique first and look at the central bank's Fed balance sheet. On this balance sheet, you'll see that not only banks that have accounts there, There is also the U.S. Treasury, of course. We'll get to that in a second step. But there are also foreign central banks, among many other financial market participants, that have access to an account at the Federal Reserve. So many other financial institutions besides banks have access to the Federal Reserve. And so like you and I, we have an account at banks. They have an account at the Federal Reserve Bank, and they use this account to make payments with each other. So a foreign country has an account at the Federal Reserve through its central bank. And so for that country or for that central bank here, it's an asset and of course, given that it's an asset, you can run out of assets. And so you can run out of funds in your account at the federal reserve. So if you move that to the U S government case, consolidated case, again, you could add other accounts in there. and run through the logic. The idea again is that for the U S government, it will be a liability, the yeah account of the Bank of England, uh, the US government, okay, or the UK, in that case, if you want. And so for the UK, that account would be an asset. Like you and I, we have a bank account, and that's an asset for us. And we can run out of money on that account. The same thing for other countries, they can run out of money in there. The U.S. government itself cannot run out of money because again, for the U.S. government, these accounts are not its assets, they are its liabilities. It's just a matter of typing more numbers
1: in a computer. That's it. Interesting. So when we're talking about the consolidated approach and we see our government spend money into existence. Let's say Congress writes a bill. We are going to spend $500 million on providing some service to the American people. Mm -hmm. Take me from the signing of that bill to the disbursement of payments for that. And where does that money come from? It doesn't come from taxes, correct?
0: So again, if we're going to use the consolidated government, no. So in that case, what happens first is Congress meets and decides whatever they want to do. You took the case of $500 billion. I took the case of buying $20 worth of pizzas. And that's one of the point of MMT is to try to move the debate away from financial debates, more toward this kind of debate and what do we want the government to do for us? What kind of society do we want to have and how can the government be involved in such a society? And of course, different countries have very different response, but that's the way you ought to look at the problem of government involvement, not through the financial side, but more through the political and resource side. But we'll leave that to the side. So for us, we have decided, well, I'll go with the pizzas. We've decided to spend $20 on pizzas because we think that this serves the public purpose. And so we vote on that. The government signs it. And then it's just a matter of implementing that by buying the pizzas. And again, to buy the pizzas, the way it's gonna work is government is gonna credit the accounts of banks by $20. And the way you do that is you type plus 20 in the account (laughs) of banks on the computer. And so the liability side of the US government goes up by plus 20. And of course, the banks themselves then use these funds to pay the pizza shops. So the pizza shop will receive $20 on their accounts at the private banks. And in return, of course, they make a pizza. And so the government will receive on its asset side pizzas. That's it. Okay. And then after that, what it does with pizzas probably eats them. If you want to do art, now you have a. Art going on was nailing a banana to a wall. Maybe you want to do that with the pizzas too.
1: (laughs) Well, one of the concerns that always comes back during this portion of the conversation, when you're creating the reserves within the spending, Mm -hmm. that the bank, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, the government, someone pays interest on reserves. And they say that this is a really bad thing And so we gotta do everything in our power to prevent interest accumulating on reserves. Can you help me understand that? Well,
0: I would have to know what bad means here.
1: Bad is never specified. This is always a boogeyman. Okay. This is the standard pushback in the world for activists when they're explaining and me stumbling through this with you. Mm. I have an idea, but some of these questions I couldn't answer that very well. Yeah.
0: Interest on the reserve for the United States is something quite new. And the goal of that is to make sure that the central bank can meet its interest rate target. And again, to pay interests on the reserve account. So now the banks have $20 in reserves there. There is a certain interest rate on these reserves. And let's say after a year, you have to pay $2 of interest service on the reserves. Well, the way you do that is just add two to the account, either by doing it through the computers. In modern days, in the past, it was writing on a ledger. Plus, we had two. So now you have 22. And there is nothing bad. The government cannot run out of money to pay those things, banks themselves can't do much with the reserve they have because again, reserves are accounts at the government and banks can only make payments with each other. They cannot buy anything from the private sector with those reserves. So they're just laying around there.
1: So... Banks can't lend reserves and don't spend reserves. Reserves stay within the banking system.
0: That's right. It's like, again, let's say you want to buy a car from your friend Andy and you have a bank account, but Andy doesn't have one. Well, in that case, he can't pay you by using a bank account. He's going to have to find another mean. I guess it's going to be a cash transaction in this case. But the point is that if someone doesn't have a bank account, you cannot transact with that person through the banking system. And so the same way, you and I don't have a reserve account, so we cannot transact with banks and banks cannot transact with us through reserve accounts.
1: Okay, very good. We've covered the consolidated balance sheet. And let me ask you, is there anything about the consolidated balance sheet? We're talking about consolidation of the Federal Reserve and the Treasury as one mirror image. One side's plus as the other side's minus and they mirror exactly, correct?
0: We're saying that we're merging the two entities into one. It's a bit like getting married. So you're merging all your assets together. You're merging all your liabilities together. And if for some reason, Mr. X owed $10 to Mrs. Y and Mrs. Y also owed $10 to Mrs. X, when they meet together, they basically write off these interdebt that they have with each other. So there are things canceling out. So that's what consolidating means and of course the implications are first as we saw that the government spends by creating accounts that taxes do not fund the u.s government same thing with government securities okay they don't do that again if you want the detail we will have to run through the accounting it's not possible that fund and the last conclusion is that you have to find a way to inject Reserves in the economy first before you can tax or issue government securities. And so that means that the role of taxes and government securities is no longer linked to financing the government. They have a purpose. So you still need those things, but you don't look at them from a financial perspective, which has Quite significant implications for how and why you tax and how and why you issue public debt. Some of these things will retrieve in step
1: two. Every year the Federal Reserve tallies up its expenses, Hmm. pays its expenses, and then it gives the Treasury a huge amount of money. It doesn't keep any of the profits for itself. But ultimately, the Federal Reserve remits it back to the Treasury. Mm-hmm. And then I assume that goes into the Treasury's general account, right. which is a point of great consternation for some. Can you explain that process?
0: Sure. So the idea is that the Federal Reserve, when it makes a profit, and recently it has not made a profit, and so it has not remitted any funds to the Treasury, after distribution of dividends to member banks, it basically moves all that profit to the account of the treasury. Again, to do it well we would have to do it through a account balance. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to do that this way, but that's the general idea. Okay.
1: okay. now let's go with the coordinated versus consolidated walk us through this process
0: so again a lot of people are going to say well when you talk about the u.s government this way it's confusing it's not how people think about it and that leads to Strange results. Techs don't fund government, government securities don't fund the government. So if we don't want to do that, we're going to look at the coordination. The idea here is that again, the consolidation case is a theoretical tool to use to understand public finance, and it's backed by extensive Institutional details that you observe by looking at the coordination. So it's not like we're doing that just for fun. This analysis, this consolidation case is grounded in detailed analysis of how the central bank and the treasury interact with each other, not only in the United States, but abroad too, in many countries. So if you look at The interaction between the treasury and the central bank, the first thing you'll notice, it's very extensive and it's not exceptional, it's routine, and it occurs daily. And it goes on several levels. The first level is in terms of making sure that the central bank can implement monetary policy smoothly. What that means in practice is that the central bank is able to meet its interest rate target because monetary policy is about setting a price. In this case, the price is an interest rate. And so as a central bank, your role is to dictate what the specific interest rate, we're not going to go into detail which one, but a specific interest rate should be. We'll generalize and say, we'll set interest rate. The treasury has a role to play here in helping the central bank maintain its interest rate target. The second is in terms of fiscal policy. Now that we have separated the two entities and we have decided to transfer most monetary powers to the Fed, we have a treasury that now needs to fund itself. And the way the treasury funds itself is through tax revenues and through the issuance of government securities. So with the trillion dollar coin that you can also do monetary financing by the US treasury, the US treasury coins, the US standard denomination, it used to issue also United States notes as they were called before. So Treasury, if it wanted, could use its monetary power and finance itself that way. But today we have decided that the financing, the bulk of it, has to go through taxes and the issuance of government securities. However, in these financial operations, the Treasury Department is not left hanging. The central bank is there to make sure that Treasury can always get the funding it needs to implement the budget that was passed by Congress. So that's the second level through which you have coordination. A third one is to promote financial stability, and it's linked to monetary policy, but it's also broader than that. The U.S. treasury securities and treasury securities of other countries are usually seen as very safe securities, at least for developed countries that are monetarily sovereign. And they are also liquid. So the financial sector likes to hold treasuries. And it used these treasuries as a foundation for their financial strategies, for pricing securities, for regulatory purposes. And so they have a large role to play in the financial sector. As a consequence, that leads the U.S. Treasury and other treasuries again to issue treasuries for broader purposes. Than merely budgetary needs. So we're going to run through all three. The main conclusions we're going to reach is that the public debt, that is the dollar amount of all US treasuries, is managed in a way that is not necessarily consistent with budgetary needs. And the second conclusion we'll reach is that the U.S. Treasury will always be able to fund itself because it has the backing of the Federal Reserve. And that backing comes through several methods. And at the same time, the Treasury also has the back of the Federal Reserve and helps the Federal Reserve implement its policies. So broadly, Government financial operations through monetary policy, through fiscal policies, through management of the public debt, involve heavy coordination between the two entities to make sure that you have a smooth functioning of the economy and ensuring that we have smooth financial operations of the government in general. So I guess we can start with monetary policy. In terms of monetary policy, the central bank and again, other central banks throughout the world, use US treasuries to manage interest rates. Now we have moved recently to additional techniques to manage interest rates. We talked about interest rate on reserve and all this, but again, US treasuries, can help maintain interest on reserve. And the way it works is the central bank basically wants to buy or sell U.S. treasuries to and from banks and to try to impact the amount of reserves in the system. Because the interest rate the central bank targets is basically the interest rate at which banks lend and borrow reserve among each other. So the interest rate target is basically the price of reserves, if you want. And to make sure that the price of reserves stays on target, the central bank has to manage the amount of reserve in the system. Now it gets really esoteric here. So the way I do it usually to bring it back to earth is use the case a potato farmer. So let's say we have a potato farmer in Idaho that decides that he wants to fix the price of a bag of potatoes everywhere in the United States. He has this idea that I'm going to make sure that when people go to the supermarket, the price of a bag of potatoes is going to be $5. Everywhere in all supermarkets, that has to be five dollars. Now, how are we gonna do this? Well, first of all, you have to see what the market price is currently. So he wants the market price of a bag of potatoes supermarket to be five. What if currently the price of a bag of potato is three dollars? What will he have to do? Well, What they'll have to do is buy potatoes from other farmers. The idea being, farmers now have two choices. They can sell to the supermarket for $3, or they can sell to that farmer, we'll call it farmer John, at $5. Well, $3 at the supermarket, $5 to John, they're going to sell their potatoes to John. So John is going to accumulate tons and tons of potatoes on its fields. He's going to have pyramids of potatoes coming in. <laughs> and of course, that means that the supermarkets say, hey, you used to sell potatoes to us. How come you're not selling? And the farmers are going to say, well, John here is buying from us at five. You only buy from us at three. If you want us to sell you potatoes, you're going to have to at least raise your price to $5. And so then supermarkets are going to have to raise the price at which they sell their bag of potatoes. Otherwise, they won't have any potatoes. So that's the first side. And so the price of a bag of potatoes in the supermarket will rise until they reach, until they reach $5. What if the price of a bag of potato now goes up? Above that, it goes to $7. Well, John says, no, 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 that's not good either. It's too high. Prayer was too low. Now it's too high. So I want, again, the bag of potatoes to be at five. So how is it going to do that? Well, in that case, you have the supermarket that have two choices. They can buy a bag of potatoes for $7 from other farmers. Or well, they can buy from John at five. Which one they're going to choose? They're going to choose buying from John, of course. And so John is going to release all the potatoes he had accumulated in his fields there, and he's going to sell them at $5 to the supermarket. So that means that farmers now are left hanging and say, hey, why aren't you buying potatoes from us, supermarkets? And supermarkets are gonna say, Well, there's John here selling to us for five, and you're selling it to us for seven. We're not gonna buy from you, you're too expensive compared to John. And so farmers are gonna have to lower the price of their potatoes to five, and then the supermarkets are gonna start buying from them. So by buying and selling potatoes at five dollars, Fymer John is able to set the price of potatoes everywhere. Of course, to be able to do that, he has to be able to buy as many potatoes as needed to make sure the price goes to five. And he has to sell as many potatoes as needed to make sure that, again, the price is at five. So He loses control over the amount of potatoes he's receiving and the amount of potatoes he's selling. He has to do whatever it takes in terms of quantity of potatoes to meet the $5 price at the supermarket. Well, the same thing basically is going on with the Federal Reserve. The main difference with the Federal Reserve is that, contrary to John, the Federal Reserve is a monopoly supplier of reserves. John had lots of other people supplying reserves. The Fed is the only one that creates reserves. And the Fed wants to set the price at which reserves are borrowed and land among banks. The same way John wanted to set the price at which potatoes were trading in supermarkets. Well, To do that, you're going to have to add as much reserve as needed or remove as much reserve as needed to make sure that the interest rate on reserves stays on target. And the way you add and remove reserves is by buying and selling U.S. treasuries. So that's what monetary policy is all about.
1: When you were explaining this, it sounded very much like the nominal price anchor of a job guarantee where you can buy up as much buffer stock of unused labor as you want. But in order to get it back, you got to pay the price that the job guarantee is paying. I just felt very similar. Are they similar? Yeah, they are.
0: It's a buffer stock approach for reserves. Very good. Okay. The main issue, of course, for the central bank is that, again, to be able to add and remove reserve, he has to buy and sell U.S. treasuries. Again, we have moved to new operating procedures that have limited the need to do that recently, but historically, that's the way the central bank has done it. Now, what if the central bank runs out of treasuries? And it needs to sell more treasuries, but it doesn't have Anymore. Well, what's going to happen is, can I go knock at the door of the U.S. Treasury and say, knock, knock, could you please issue more U.S. Treasuries? I need you to help me drain more reserves. So this kind of issuance of U.S. Treasuries for monetary policy purposes has occurred several times through U.S. history. World War II was one. A more recent case was 2008 financial crisis. So, the Treasury will issues U.S. Treasuries for other reasons than financing itself. That's one. Now, I guess we can skip directly to number three here, which is financial stability. As I said, the Treasury securities are used by private financial institutions for many reasons and the treasury tries to accommodate their needs as much as possible first of all it's going to ask the financial market participants what do they like so it's going to say do you prefer short term do you prefer long term so it gets to query financial market participants about what they want and second of all it always makes sure that the U.S. treasury market or treasury markets in general stay liquid. And where you can start to have problems with that is if the U.S. treasuries start to run surpluses. So when the U.S. Treasury runs surpluses, they usually use the surplus to repay the public debt. That means that now the amount of U.S. treasuries circulating in the economy Goes down. And that's usually seen as a noble policy goal to try to reduce public debt. The problem is that reducing the public debt means you reduce the amount of treasuries and that lowers the liquidity of the US Treasury markets, in addition to create a headache for monetary policy purposes. So If you look at the experience of U.S. treasuries throughout the world, when they have been running consistent surpluses, they have also, at the same time, continued to issue U.S. treasuries or treasuries in general. They don't need to issue them because they have a financing need. Again, they are running surpluses, the amount of funds in their account Is going up and they can repay the public debt. They do it because they want to maintain the stability of the financial system. So again, an example that Bill Mitchell has nicely analyzed was the case of the Australian government, where that has run fiscal surpluses for a decade and continued to issue Australian treasuries because it was seen as a means to preserve the stability of the financial system by preserving the liquidity of the treasury market. Clearly here, there is a reason to issue U.S. treasuries or treasury in general that is not linked to financial needs and run counter to a budgetary logic. And especially... If you look at it from a point of view of household finance, why would you grow the amount of debt you have if you have the financial means to not use debt? It would seem imprudent to do that. But again, the public debt is not managed in a similar way as private finance because public debt has broader purposes than just financing the U.S. Treasury. It has these macro purposes. So that's the second layer. The third layer, which I put in second previously, was fiscal policy. So in terms of fiscal policy, the U.S. Treasury, when it receives less money from taxes than it spends, that is when it runs a fiscal deficit, issues US Treasuries to fund the difference. And the question becomes well, are we sure we're going to get the money? Maybe China will not buy the US Treasuries and we're going to be in trouble, or people are going to refuse somehow to buy them. And so then the Treasury won't be able to spend. Well, again, if you look at the coordination between the central bank and the Federal Reserve, you'll see that. The Fed is always either directly there or behind the curtain during treasury auctions. The US treasury can directly buy US treasuries at auction. Until the early 80s, it could do that to add to the amount of US treasuries it had on its balance sheet. Today, we have restricted the ability to buy new U.S. treasuries to replace those that are maturing on the balance sheet of the Fed. So it provides a stable refinancing source for the U.S. treasury. So that's the first way that the central bank is directly involved in financing the treasury. (laughs) And the second one is the fact that One of the main participants in treasury auctions are called primary dealers in the United States. They are called build-edged market makers in the UK. And what's special about primary dealers is that they are required to bid at every auction at a reasonable price. So that creates a stable demand
1: for U.S. treasuries. People say, what happens when nobody wants to buy your treasuries anymore? And after talking to Bill Mitchell, how Japan frequently buys its own bonds. Right. There's always someone, whether it be the state itself or primary dealer, or someone will always buy these bonds. Is that a correct statement? That's right.
0: If you look at the auction techniques of U.S. treasuries, it took a while to create techniques that are successful. And so for quite a while, there was what we call under subscription. That is, this treasury was trying to issue treasuries, sell them, and there was not enough demand. So what happened in that case is the Fed bought the rest, basically. But today the auctions are usually oversubscribed. That is, there is always way more demand than what the U.S. Treasury wants to sell. And going back to the primary dealers, they are one of the main buyers and the Fed financed primary dealers. And remember, primary dealers are required to bid. Okay, they must bid. And if they don't have enough funding, they can get funding to buy the treasuries, the Fed will provide them funding. So we have put an intermediary between here the Fed and the treasury in the form of primary dealers, but the Fed is there in the background helping. So one way or another, the central bank makes sure that treasury auctions are successful, either by directly buying or by financing the main buyers of treasury securities.
1: So when someone says you're wrong, that that taxes really do fund spending, what is that all about? Because it seems to be the semantic game. Is this just fundamentally the difference between seeing the consolidated balance sheet versus the cooperative one?
0: No, there is more to that here. So, break it down. So, first of all, in terms of consolidation, it's not funding, period. Now, if you look at the coordination, yes, there is funding. Where that becomes then important is people are going to say, well, then that means we have to make sure that taxes are enough to meet government spending. And so, we're going to have to think of being careful in terms of spending and making sure that we can pay for the spending by raising taxes because we don't want to run fiscal deficits because in that case, it's a road to ruin. (laughs) What MMT is saying is that, again, no, you don't want to think of public finance in that way. Because you're gonna have the Federal Reserve that will be helping. So if you run fiscal deficits, you won't have what is usually seen as the bad outcome that will come up. You don't see raising interest rates because the Fed targets rates. That's the Fed that controls interest rate, not fiscal policy. The Fed will help to make sure that auctions are successful Rising public debt does not lead to higher taxes in the future. Otherwise, we would have much higher tax rate right now. You don't want to eliminate the public debt. The public debt has a public purpose. We just explained what those public purposes are. So you don't want to make policy to reduce the public debt. It doesn't mean that you are pro-fiscal deficits. What that means is that you have to think of public finance in different ways. You want to make sure that you spend and tax to meet specific goals that you have. So if you want to tax, you tax with a goal of achieving whatever goals you have, which are relevant goals, would be reducing income inequality. Let's say you want to fight climate change. Things like that. So you can set up the tax system to meet that goal. Spending, same way. You look at it from the goal you want to achieve for employment and others, price stability for the tax system too. So what you do here is you decouple tax and spending. You don't look at them. If we're going to raise government spending by $5 billion, we have to make sure that we find an extra $5 billion because taxes fund the US treasuries. And so we have to make sure that the US treasuries doesn't run a deficit because it's bad. No, what you do is you have decided to raise government spending by 5 billion. The next step is to see, well, do we have enough resources labor, resources, material to meet the $5 billion of extra expenses we want to make. And if we do, fine, we don't have to do anything on the tax side. If we don't, well, we may have to raise taxes to drain purchasing power out of the private sector and release some resources from the private sector. So for example, let's say the government wants to buy five billion dollars of chocolate croissant and there's not enough supply of chocolate croissant to meet that extra demand, at least at the current level of demand in the private sector. So what you could do is tax the private sector to reduce their demand for chocolate croissant. They're going to spend less. That's the only thing you can buy in that economy, chocolate croissant. Now, the question is, do you have to raise taxes by $5 billion? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you have to raise them by more. Maybe you have to raise them by less. But the way you're going to look at how much you're going to have to raise taxes is what do you think the effect is going to be on the economy and the ability then to meet the increase in demand for chocolate croissant without raising the price of chocolate croissant. And so you have to look at what tax rates you want to put in, the elasticity of demand, relative income, so things like that. And you may end up having to raise taxes only by, let's say, a billion dollars. Or you may have to raise taxes by $10 billion. The point is, you don't immediately say, we raise government spending by 5000000000 billion. We're going to have to raise taxes by $5 billion. Why? Why do you want to do that? Well, usually the fear here is that if we don't raise by 5 billion taxes, we're going to have to have a deficit and this is going to create some instability and it's going to be bad, bad for interest rate, bad for economic growth, bad in terms of tax rate, whatever, name it. And what we see is that empirically there is no relationship between fiscal deficits and inflation and interest rates. And things
1: like that. Very good, Eric. I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through this. Some of this stuff was said differently than I've heard, and it's helped me put some stuff together. I guess my final question to you, Eric, is October 1st, people's student debt comes back into play. It wouldn't be paid for by your taxes or anything like that to allow everyone to cancel the student debt. Mm hmm. And as far as monetary operations go within the Federal Reserve, the institutions have already been paid. They've already received the money for the goods and services they sold. Mm-hmm. What happens to that money? Within this framework that we just discussed in this podcast, what does that transaction look like based on what we've just said?
0: So in terms of the consolidated case, What's going to happen is you're going to destroy a bunch of reserves and the government is going to gain a net worth. In terms of the coordinated case, the reserves are going to fall and treasury account is going to rise. That's it. Again, if we want to
1: do that, we're going to have to do the accounting on the board. Right. But the point I'm making here is no tax dollars were spent. Nobody didn't get paid. No, again, it's the same as chocolate croissant.
0: You don't need taxes to be able to do the spending you need. At least you don't need to raise taxes by the same amount. You may need to raise them, but not necessarily by the same amount. You may need to raise them again by more or by less. You look at taxes from the point of view of, Trying to manage the economic system, not from the point of view of financing the treasury and ensuring that you have a balanced budget. That's not how you look at them.
1: Instead of transactional on one side, it's more like an EQ on a stereo. We're trying to tune the economy. That's right. All right. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. And again, I'm really looking forward to being able to see you actually draw this stuff out and walk us through the balance sheet transactions. I know that that's where the money is. When I
0: was in France studying economics, in France, you are required to take two and a half years of accounting for your economy degree. Some of it is national income accounting and the rest is private accounting. And I was so boring, so boring. (laughs) But in the end, with insight, it's actually very useful. So boring
1: that you decided to specialize in it. (laughs) Eric, I really appreciate this. And I can't wait for us to have you on to do the webinar to walk us through this stuff. This is really important. And I want to be precise, but I also want to be effective in explaining things. I'm hoping that by understanding the way these systems operate, that we can demand better from our governments And if our governments don't respond, we understand how it really works and then we can make different decisions as activists. Eric, let us all know where we can find more of your work. And also, by the way, tell Jan I said hello.
0: All right, I will. So you can go to my webpage. Usually the drafts of all the papers that I wrote are there. And freely accessible. And to find my webpage, you just type my last name. And usually it gets there. It's the first page, usually, first link. I'm on Twitter, not as much as I used to be. I have other things to do, so don't have as much time for this as I used to have. Even there, I didn't have that much time, but yeah. (laughs) So I have moved Twitter in the background.
1: Understood. Believe me, I would love to move it way in the background, but it's the only way we can reach out to people. So with that, Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. And please remember macro and cheese. Is in fact part of the Real Progressives Network. Real Progressives is a nonprofit. We live and die by your financial donations. And if you want to get involved, please come to our website, realprogressives.org. Go to get involved and come volunteer. Eric, thank you so much, sir. My name is Steve Grumbine. I'm the host of Macaron and Cheese. And for my guest and I, we are out of here. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy, descriptive writing by Virginia Cox, and promotional artwork by Andy Kennedy. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash RealProgressives. I want the truth!